0: Welcome to today's episode of Lead This, a co-hosted interview style podcast built for leaders and aspiring leaders who need practical help and encouragement for the challenges they face. Led by career coach Lisa Adams and Dr. Seth Stone, leadership development expert, together they bring you engaging guests and thought-provoking leadership discussions. Now let's dive into today's episode.
1: Well, hello, everyone. It's Lisa Adams again here with my co-host Seth Stone. And today we have the honor of having Bill Treasurer. Bill is the chief encouragement officer of Giant Leap Consulting. He's the author of international bestseller Courage Goes to Work, which introduced the new management practice of courage building and Leaders Open Doors, which began the number one leadership training book on Amazon. All royalties from Leaders Open Doors are donated to programs that support kids with special needs. Bill also has a new book that just came out. and We'll be talking about that momentarily. Bill designs leadership and succession programs for emerging and experienced leaders for NASA, Saks Fifth Avenue, UBS Bank, Walsh Construction, and many others. Bill holds a master's degree from the University of Wisconsin and a bachelor's degree from West Virginia University, where he attended school on a full athletic scholarship. In addition to being an author and a business owner, Bill is a former U.S. high diving team captain, a cancer survivor and the father of three children bill welcome we're so excited to have you here today thank you so so much
0: for being on
2: lisa what a fantastic introduction thank you i look forward to talking to you and to seth today so let's get right into it i can't Uh, wait
0: awesome yeah thanks thanks bill let's let's jump right in we got a lot to to go through and not a whole lot of time to go through it so Let's start with this I mean we've we've had a chance to talk uh, a little bit and just kind of getting to know you briefly before getting to to do this and and you have a pretty interesting story in terms of how you got to where you are today and as Lisa kind of mentioned alluded to that included some some high diving uh, that has sort of influenced your life and um, you know we know it's it's shaped how you approach leadership so would you mind kind of sharing your story a little bit for our audience.
2: Sure. We'll do a a rewind back to that point in time. So (laughs) I I was uh, after graduate school, actually during graduate school, um, it had something to do with it. So I was a professional high diver. I was diving from 100 feet into pools that were 10 feet deep, traveling at speeds in excess of 50 miles an hour, protected only by a speedo. No, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so, in fact, I'm wearing it now, right now on this, uh, on this podcast. I glad we on the radio. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I uh, I was a member of the U.S. high diving team, and I traveled all around the world and mostly through the United States and working at different amusement parks like uh, Marineland in Florida and Six Flags over Texas and Magic Mountain in California and all around the United States and Canada. And, uh, and I did 1,500 high dives as a member of the U.S. high diving team, performing, doing that for seven years. And uh, during that time, I had one of the divers. It was my second year when I was a second year professional. I felt like I knew everything. And uh, I they moved me into a leadership role. And I had no reference point on how to be a leader other than the boss that I had had before me and a boss before that and ultimately my dad. And so I just adopted my dad's sort of parenting style as my leadership style. And I was heavy handed and dictatorial and high tempered. And one of the divers confronted me one day, uh, when the other divers were out of earshot and said, you know, Bill, let me tell you something. You suck at leading. He's like, you don't bring people along with you. And I don't need to be treated this badly by anybody. I'll walk. If you, if you're going to continue to lead this way. Mm -hmm. And can you imagine Mm -hmm. that my own employee basically told me that I sucked at leading? Yeah. And, uh, boy, that stung. Mm -hmm. And I knew that it was right, because I didn't know who I was as a leader at all. So I started reading books on leadership and management. And I came across this term organizational development. And I got a little bit better as a leader. And I got really interested in the topic. And ultimately, while I was there, during those years as a high diver, I put myself through graduate school did my uh, thesis on leadership, and then uh, eventually retired my Speedo and uh, <laughs> and got my first job in organizational development uh, working for a leadership development company. So it, it was that courageous mm-hmm. divers feedback right in my face, confronting me with my own limitations that set me on a trajectory of Exploring leadership development getting a little bit better uh, as a leader myself, but getting really interested in the topic of leadership
0: mm. That's awesome. Yeah. And that, it, it makes me want to dive into the book, but we're not there yet But that was a, <laughs> that was a good that was a good teaser um, <laughs> But we will get there soon. So sure you um, You have a unique mm. perspective when yeah. it comes to leadership and, and that's one of the things that I think we we appreciate you about you a lot Um uh, it, and a lot of it hinges on this idea of courage and and risk taking. So, you know, based on your experience, I don't think we hear a lot of leaders kind of you know sit on these two things a lot. But the, but they're important, and and you make a really compelling case for it. So why are these two elements so important for people who are either currently leading or aspiring to lead?
2: Well, the interesting thing about courage is that Aristotle, right? You go go way back to one of the biggest, greatest philosophers of all time, said that courage is a virtue. And he said, courage is not just one of the virtues, it's the first virtue because it makes all the other virtues possible. And... And by the way, C.S. Lewis, the great theologian, said that uh, courage is not just one of the virtues, it's all of the virtues taken to the testing point. Uh, Winston Churchill called it the first of the human qualities. The Catholic Church calls it one of the four cardinal virtues. So outside of work, courage has always been the premier, uh, oftentimes the single most important virtue of all. And yet we never think of it in the workplace But it's critical Mm. to the workplace because courage connects to so many things. If you want to be a great leader, you've got to render bold decisions that plenty of people are going to disagree with, and that takes courage. If you want to be an innovator or an entrepreneur, you've got to be willing to draw outside the lines and experiment and make some mistakes. And frankly, you've got to be willing to be a blasphemer. Mm -hmm. do something Mm -hmm. that the market's not doing and that they initially see as blasphemy. Mm -hmm. And then thirdly, if you want to be a great salesperson or business developer, you got to knock on hundreds of doors in the face of rejection over and over again. So I see courage as the first virtue of leadership and business as well. My friends, Jim Kuzas and Barry Posner, great leadership researchers. They wrote a book called The Leadership Challenge and many other books. Mm -hmm. They just put it flat out. You can't be a leader without courage. Mm -hmm. And, And i I agree with that. So I've set up my business as a courage building company. And it does rewind back to the high dive because I was a high diver who was afraid of heights. And through the coach who nudged me into my own discomfort, not comfort, but my discomfort zone, helped me discover my courage. And it made all the difference in my life. So now I help companies through my business, Giant Leap Consulting, help them take giant leaps by identifying what are the courageous moments that they need to have to take whatever metaphorical high dives they might be facing either as a professional or as a business.
1: Mm -hmm. So, Bill, you coach folks, just to be clear, you coach folks individually and through company organizations. Will you take a team through kind of building courage as a team or team of leaders? How do you do that?
2: The answer is yes to, to <laughs> yes all of to those. All of it, right? I literally, before we uh, got on our conversation today, literally just came from a coaching conversation with the vice president of a company that I've been coaching with for a while. At any given time, I'm generally, you know, so my business does a number of things. We do a lot of leadership development, a lot of design and development and delivery of leadership development programs, not just a one day workshop, but oftentimes like an 18 month program. But at any given moment, I'm uh, coaching personally one-on-one, a cadre of about 20 leaders. Uh, mm-hmm. Not not at the same time, obviously, at different days during the month and such, right. so it keeps me in the coaching conversation, it keeps me knowing what's top of mind to leaders. But yes, yeah, so I work at the individual level to work with a coachee to help them have whatever courageous moments that they need to have, and I also work at the team level, oftentimes with the P-teams. Uh, or even project teams. I'm getting ready to work with the quality team of a a department of a a construction company who's uh, having some challenge and actually another one is the safety team that I'm working with so that they can demonstrate more courageous behaviors with one another. So but the umbrella concept that we always come back to is are we being courageous Mm. enough with each other and how we communicate with each other in the way that we trust or fail to trust one another. Uh, And are we pursuing courageous enough goals
0: Mm. bill that that what you just said kind of leads me right into a a Follow-up question. I love the the perspective on courage Mm -hmm. Um, It's so true. It's 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 true, true. but it's it's highly practical Mm -hmm. You talked about pushing people into that discomfort zone. You had that experience uh, Personally, but then also doing that in terms of working with people that obviously requires a high degree of trust How do you build that sort of trust uh, in a way to where people are saying, okay, Bill, I trust you enough to to allow you to to push me in that direction, into that discomfort zone?
2: You know, Seth, that's a really keen insight Mm -hmm. that, that you put that together. Because you're right, to be able to move people into discomfort, and let's be clear, human beings and organizations don't grow in a zone of comfort. We grow, progress, and evolve in a zone of discomfort. Mm -hmm. And you as a leader, so so what this means, and and it's going to sound harsh when I say it, that you as a leader have to make people uncomfortable. It's part of your job. Mm -hmm. I don't mean it in a punitive or intimidating way, but I mean it in a way that refuses to accept apathy or complacency. So you've got to be able to nudge people into discomfort, and you've got to be able to discern how much is absorbable by the person. Because if you nudge them too far out into discomfort, they'll choke. Uh, They'll have fight, flight, or freeze where they choke in their performance. Mm -hmm. So you're Mm -hmm. right, though, Seth. It hinges. It's so powerfully based on how much trust do you have with that person that you might be nudging into discomfort. It partly comes down to that critical question that we might all be thinking at a subconscious level, but we don't always say it at the conscious level, and that is, Do you care about me? Do you care Mm. about me? Absolutely. And if that person, if you're leader, if you genuinely care about the person that you're leading, not just because they are a resource and a vehicle to getting your own goals done, but because you care about that person's career and their aspirations and their fulfillment – and if you really have their interests at heart, that person will start to trust you more because they'll know how deeply you care about them. What I will say, though, Seth, is that I don't think it's an instant process, right? No, like I, I think trust does take a certain time over target. It takes a, a witnessing uh, of how committed you really are to that person. So instant trust is really rare to get. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does take a certain fulfillment of promises with one another built up over time mm-hmm.
0: That's such a good mm-hmm. point too because mm-hmm. i mean lately i've been hearing people say you know in situations i say well you know boss says just trust me well mm-hmm. i've only been working no. for you for three months i don't even know you I, how, am I, <laughs> <laughs> how am i supposed to trust you you know to your point bill it takes time mm-hmm. um, yes. and i think you made such an important point there about the the level of care people can see right through that can't they i mean they can tell if you really care about them don't they
2: Oh, man, oh, you know, we, and the, the, totally. and you hear it, you, you know, you'll you'll hear some self-important executive "You oh, know, our people are our greatest asset. Our people are our greatest resource. <laughs> Let me tell you something. If you're talking about your people as being resources and assets, you're already showing that you don't care about them yeah. as human beings. Right. Uh, you know, so I, we say that we care about people as our assets and resources. And yet, you know, we we rarely think. For working hard, we we uh, don't acknowledge their contribution. We don't ask for their ideas. We unilaterally make decisions without them. We don't listen to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, even if we're an executive that just walks around with a dour face all the time, it just sort of shows that you don't really care. So you, we play at lip service. We play at lip service, but sometimes we don't actually transmit that we are actually caring for somebody I I, want to go back to that idea of trust a little bit because it reminds me I actually worked with a team yesterday a petro company down in Houston and and I shared with them this story about a boss that I used to work for and I'll share his name because he's still a mentor to me his name is Heinz Brannan and Heinz I had worked with Heinz when I was back at Accenture ultimately I worked for him for about six years and about three years into it So we've built up trust, right? So Mm -hmm. now I've worked for him for already for three years. I know the guy has my back. I know he's not going to give me feedback just to hurt my feelings. I know it's because he genuinely cares about my career because he's shown it in other instances. And he gives me feedback that I am becoming a brown noser. Oh, wow. it hurt! <laughs> I, it stung. Another
1: a, another stinging moment.
2: <laughs> yes, okay. I mean it was like the definition of a leadership kick in the ass, right? <laughs> and uh, I was embarrassed, uh, but because we had had that much trust. And because he did it in a professional way and because I knew that he cared about me, I could answer that subconscious question. And I knew that I could trust him. Then I I was way more receptive to a, a message that was really full of assertiveness. Right. But ultimately, his message was one of permission. He told me basically, you know care less what other people think about you. You're people-pleasing too much, and you're doing it around me too much. And ultimately, that's dishonesty. You're trying to get something out of me through false friendship. And mm-hmm. that's really manipulation. Mm-hmm. He's, he's like, I'd rather have you not be a yes person and tell me the truth that, that's going on for you than to kiss up to me in order to get ahead. That was such a gigantically valuable message for me to hear, but I never would have heard it. In fact, it would have gotten defensive and proven while he was wrong uh, had I not had any trust between the two of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it really hinged on trust. And it was definitely an uncomfortable message. Uh, he nudged me out to discomfort, but in a way that suggested that he actually cared about where I was going with my career. That, And by the way, yeah. you know, sure, I've got people-pleasing tendencies. Plenty of people in our field do. Yeah. but. But it uh, it made me better. It lifted me into a different standard, and I do care a little bit less what people think about me today. And maybe it makes me a, uh, more muscular in my writing.
1: It's <laughs> bolder, yes. Well, yeah. Yeah. That's, a, that's
0: a really good example, though. Yeah, that's a is. really good story that kind of highlights the the importance of that. I mean, trust it
1: highlights piece. a couple things. I mean, you've had a couple people in your life that were courageous enough to give you feedback. Right. Um, and you had that level of trust. And it's one of those things uh, Seth and I talk about on a regular basis in our consulting, too, is, you know, when you're working with leaders, uh, one of my main mantras to them is show that you care. And if you don't care, don't be a leader. <laughs> Go back to oh. being an individual contributor somewhere. And or work solo. You can totally do that But if you're if you're not if you don't care what other people think or you don't care about empowering your team Don't lead them because they'll be able to see right through it and you'll be ineffective, right?
2: And you'll do damage. Yes. Yep. Yeah
1: <laughs> Leave that leave that trail of bodies behind you, which is bad, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> so um, Bill in, in a lot of your um, conversations too, you talk about good risk-taking Along with being courageous, tell tell me more, like how do how do you see leaders differentiate between, differentiate between taking a good risk and allowing their ego to just get in the way to make a decision that that would possibly be a stupid one?
2: Yeah, it's it's uh, it's a good question. I remember reading. You know, I'm a great. I'm certainly fond of Stephen Covey's work, and he had had a big impact on my thinking and such. And I loved The Seven Habits of All. You know, one of the greatest books of all time. God bless him. You know, God bless him, and uh, God rest his soul. Um, That said, it it intrigued me that in The Seven Habits, he looked at uh, courage and consideration, and he saw courage as um, sort of desire for self. And consideration as desire to, you know, help somebody other than you, and I don't see courage as selfishness. So that sort of made me scratch my head. I do think though that there are times when you can make a decision and take a risk that is ego-based, and and it's not for the right reasons. And there can be a selfishness to to the application of your courage. So what I do is I suggest to people that they put it through five filters whenever we're facing a big bold decision, we tend to just do a pro and con list. Uh, What am I going to get from this situation or what am I going to lose from this situation, which is really simplistic. I think it helps to have a few more filters than just gain or loss. The first place that I like to start with when you're facing, so imagine you're at the threshold of a big decision. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's to hire somebody, for your first time. Maybe it's to fire somebody for your first time. Maybe it's to ask for a promotion. Maybe it's to um, start your own business. You know, I don't know what the threshold would be, but let's just imagine you're at the, the threshold of a big decision that has risk involved in it. The, what I think is to first find out, A, are you passionate about you? So I call these the five P's. The first P is, are you passionate? Does it give you energy to think about this, or does it exhaust you to think about it? Is it depleting your energy, or does it fulfill you with energy in a positive direction? Can you get personally excited about it? The second P is, is it on purpose? Like, you know, is it on message? Is it consistent with where you say you want to go with your career, you know, the way I put it is that a good risk should not just be about compensation. What will it get me? Mm-hmm. But where will it take me? True. Will, yeah. will it move me closer to what I'm trying to get accomplished in, in a longer journey with my career? So is it on purpose? Mm-hmm. The third P is principles. Does it embody, if I take this risk, does it embody a set of values or principles that I say that I hold dear and that these really matter most to me? Is it consistent with that? Or is it out of alignment with that? Mm-hmm. So is it connected to my principles? That's the third P. The fourth P is, am I taking or am I considering this risk of my own prerogative or because I feel like I'm being pushed off of this high dive, that somebody's actually got their foot on my back and they're pushing me off into doing this thing? Or am I taking it of my own free will as an exercise of my own prerogative? Right. And then the fourth one, the last one, To me, the last question you should ask is profit. What do I stand to gain? But Mm -hmm. that should not be the first question. I think if you put your risk through those five filters, uh, the five Ps, that it can't guarantee that you'll be successful in your risk. But it will, in my estimation, guarantee that you will increase the probability of a right risk for you, meaning that you'll increase the probability of a successful outcome more so than if you just did a pro and con list.
0: That's really good. Very I mean, true. it's it's not only is it is it practical, I mean, to your point, is it going to guarantee success every time? No. But I, I would think, now I never use these filters, I intend to, um, but uh, I would think even if it doesn't work out, at least at the end of the day, you can put your head on the pillow and say, I had
2: the right intention when yeah. it came to taking that risk. Would that be fair? Yeah, definitely. In mm-hmm. fact, it's the title of my first book is Right Risk and ten powerful principles for taking giant leaps with your life and the whole point of the book was that look you may take this risk and even if it's not successful, if you've put it through thoughtful criteria like the five P's, you'll be able to be comfortable in your own skin that it was right for you and you did the right thing, despite the unsuccessful outcome. hmm Yeah,
0: absolutely. So spe- speaking of books, we can wait no longer. Yes, um,
1: let's talk about the new one. Yeah,
0: uh, I mean we're gonna we're gonna get to a couple other things here because as we noted before, we know you write, we know you. You speak, and obviously you have the firm giant leap, um, and and we're gonna spend a little more time hitting those things than we already have. But let's get to the new book, A Leadership Kick in the Ass. Um, I love the title. The title's great. <laughs> the, title, the title's fantastic. Um, I mean, there's there's so much in there, and and I want to kind of let you go in in certain directions that you'd like to go. But I, I want to kind of tee it up with this. One of the things you talk about early on, you talk about that moment of reckoning. Um, you alluded to that, and in, in, I believe the story you gave was actually in, in the forward as well, mm. that uh, that uh, example from your early leadership days in high diving. But, um, you know, the humbling moment when we realized that uh, we might not be the leader we think we are and how it can be wildly painful, um, but your whole premise is that this can be actually a tremendous opportunity. So uh, do you want to start there, maybe expand on that, and then, then hit a couple other key elements?
2: Yeah. Sure. And and just as a little bit of context, two things. The first is, relative to the title, my 80-year-old New Yorker mother approved of the word ass in the title. There you go. (laughs) So she she said to me in her fine New York accent, eh, Billy, that word's not much of a swear word anymore. I say use it. Oh, I love it. So we went with it. Nice. Um, the, the second is that what informs the book, and I didn't really realize this until after the book was written. Sometimes the, when, you're, when you write a book like this, the book doesn't even tell you what it's about until after it's done. But what I realized after it was written, where it was coming from is I've got a lot of cool clients. You read them, Lisa, in my introduction, mm-hmm. um, and I feel fortunate. But in the last dozen years, the biggest concentration of my clients have been Chicago- unionized construction companies and believe me ass is the tamest word in the room <laughs> when they have a meeting definitely so these are nitty-gritty folks and they speak in nitty-gritty real ways i didn't feel the need to you know to bless people with strong sat words to prove how smart i was i wanted to speak like my actual readers and the people that the book would resonate with so the 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 main premise book as you suggested seth is that um I'll tell you, it really goes back to what Clint Hurdle, the coach of the Pittsburgh Pirates, who wrote the forward to the book, and he says it in the first line is one thing that he's learned as the manager of the Pirates is that there's two types of leaders, those who have been humbled and those who are about to be. Mm-hmm. The, the truth is that any career worth its salt mm-hmm. in, when you're in a leader at some point you're going to get an emotional spanking of some sort, Absolutely. often of a result of a reverberation of your own ego and your own behavior that puts you in that situation to get that emotional spanking. And the question becomes, what happens to you in that point of failure? What happens to you when you find out that you weren't the leader that you thought you were, when you get that uh, cold dose of reality staring you right in the face where you've got to confront yourself and say that... Um, that this hurts. I call it transformative humiliation. Mm. The interesting thing about the, the books really about comes down to that. I think that we want two things in a leader. We certainly want a leader to have confidence. We want to know that they've got a solid sense of direction, that they're comfortable in their own skin, that they know where they're going and where they're taking us and that they are, have backbone. So we want a sense of confidence, but we also want a leader to have humility. We want a leader who knows their roots, that uh, is not pretentious, uh, can look us in the eye as a fellow human being and not lord over us, Mm -hmm. that uh, it can hear us too, that notices us too, that has a certain degree of humility and modesty. So we want leaders to be confident, yes, but we also want leaders to be humble. Absolutely. And the sweet spot is confident humility. The Mm -hmm. challenge is that not everybody, and and frankly for a lot of leaders that oftentimes have a dominant social uh, disposition, that humility oftentimes will have to come through a humiliation, Mm -hmm. right? So this word, Mm -hmm. we get to humility, which is so critical, oftentimes as an outcome of a humiliating event. And so this book is about what I call transformative humiliation. Those moments that you have that are somewhat of a failure, that can then you reach a decision point what will i do as a result of this failure will i double down on my conviction that i'm right and the world is wrong and sort of stoke my victimhood or will i admit my own contribution to this figure out what needs to change and then embrace the changes to make me a better more seasoned leader that's so good
0: that's and it's such an i mean that's that's the real question right because what you talk about in in what we're seeking uh, to be uh, in terms of great leadership, I mean, you are talking about a beautifully perfect balance that is very 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 hard to achieve. And to your point, mm-hmm. uh, most of us are going to get that swift kick in the pants once in a while. I you know it, it's going to come, it's going to come. I mean, it, it might come, always comes might come multiple times. <laughs> uh, I, I know for me, I I get sore back there every once in a while too. So, um, <laughs> but here's so here's a practical question I think that that you know people mm-hmm. might have and, and forgive me for in a very corny way playing off your title but I'm gonna do sure. it anyway sure um, <laughs> you know I think we all run into people who work with different leaders or are under the, as you say the lordship of different leaders uh, <laughs> and, and these are the people who seemingly have the numb glutes um, they miss or dismiss the leadership kicks that you talk about throughout the book what do we do with those people
2: yeah yeah it's tough. I, I have a chapter dedicated to two different dysfunctional leader types uh, in the book. You know, we, we've certainly seen plenty of models of the kinds of, you know, good level five leader that we should be aspiring to, et cetera. And I, I wanted to entertain just a little bit in the book the, the dysfunctional leader types that we don't want to be, but often sometimes we lean in those directions. And, and one is the overconfident leader. Uh, that who has to be this way or his way or the highway? Mm-hmm. Um, who yeah. leads through social dominance and arrogance and ego, and um, and I call that the pig head. It's that yes. pig-headed leader that, uh, that you're sort of referring to mm-hmm. there. The other side, just to, to mention it very quickly, is the, is the total lack of confidence. The, you could think of it as like over-humility right. is weakness when I have no backbone and mm. I defer to everybody else. And, and I'm wishy-washy because I don't want to be displeasing or I don't have any backbone of my own. And I call those weaklings. We don't want to be led by a weakling and we don't want to be led by a pig head and those are the two dysfunctional types in terms of the the pig head it's challenging and by the way they can uh, they can do a lot of damage because on the one hand if you look just at the metrics right like they get results mm-hmm. right they, yeah they they make things happen i mean if you look at those dominant types they do move the needle on results and that's um, why
1: they they stay around longer usually
2: yeah, because we mm-hmm. forgive them because like, well, yeah, I know that that exactly. people complain or the I know we fired three people last month, but look at the revenue that he brought in. <laughs> That's yeah.
1: exactly it.
2: Yep. <laughs> you know. Yep. So so we allow this pig we enable the pig-headed mm-hmm. behavior to go on. Um, that said, at some point, you know, so so let's imagine that the pig head hasn't received a a quick kick in the ass or that they didn't <laughs> learn from it and have gone on and and their right. pig-headedness has become, you know, even more ensconced. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it is challenging. Uh, I think that when you're dealing with a pig head, yeah, so one, one concept I do talk in the about in the book is to be a velvet hammer, that, that, uh, you know, you could think of communication on, on the one hand, you have to have a certain degree of diplomacy in any workforce. um, And when you interact with people and you also have to have a certain degree of assertiveness and that would be the hammer part. So we want diplomacy, which is the velvet, but you need the assertiveness and that's the hammer. Mm -hmm. And with any given person, we have to sort of look at that as a continuum. How much velvet do I need with this person? And how much hammer do I need with this person? Mm -hmm. With pig heads, sometimes you need a bigger hammer in terms of how aggressive that you'll be in your communication with them what i can tell you my own personal experience has been when i'm dealing with a super dominant highly directive uh take no prisoners uh point in your face when they're talking kind of leader if i match it with my own aggressiveness they often they that's how you kind of earn respect with Mm -hmm. that leader Mm -hmm. is to be as aggressive like parroting or or mirroring with that person when they see you won't back down when they see that you'll fight as strong as they do Mm. it's almost like their head will turn like the rca victor dog and they're like "Eh, (laughs) this guy's got something and then they start (laughs) respecting you more so but i think that most people don't do that because they're afraid They're afraid to speak up to the intimidating, pig-headed person when it's exactly the opposite approach that will usually help you be successful.
1: Exactly. And that kind of leader is so used to getting their way that when Mm -hmm. they do have somebody that stands up to them, they pay attention.
2: Exactly. And then you you become valued. Mm -hmm. And then that person – because if – when you have a pig head, uh, the, the best, the more evolved pig head is somebody who actually surrounds themselves and has a, at least one consigliere around them, one person who can yes. get through to them and tell, be the truth teller without mm. having to be a court jester and uh, and has that consigliere who who becomes the, uh, the trusted guide, the person who will shoot straight and they know they can rely on that person mm-hmm. to shoot straight without sucking up. Yeah. Um, you know, that that's that's like one of the only ways to be successful around a pig head short of them having a magnificent kick in the ass that will ultimately humble them. You know, I, I think in the uh, I think even in the newspaper, you know, lately on the on the scene, you uh, uh, you know, I'm not sure how, how to uh, to go there. But, the, you know, so you saw this whole airline mess yes. Yes. in the last week, right? Yes. And how it was sort of mishandled, at least from a public relations standpoint and even mm-hmm. a communication standpoint, by the CEO of the company it was involved yes. in some mishandling of that, right? So here's their moment, not just as a, a company, although I think it can really be a moment for them as a company, right? But also for the CEO, if that re- CEO keeps his job, yes. um, if he does. Uh, I think it's a, it's a leadership moment for him, right? Like, okay, what changes need to happen in this company? My, my gut tells me that it was such a visceral, uh, public, uh, newsworthy event that it will absolutely cause changes resulting in de-escalation at that airline, about how they handle overbooking. They've already made some changes. Uh, but they'll, I think they'll also recognize they're sort of a mediocre airline, and they'll realize that they don't want to be mediocre anymore. Jim, Th- that's my take that's on that. A good point. That's a great – I mean, no,
1: that
0: was, pulling right from the headlines, right? I mean, that's a great practical example. It
1: was definitely a pivotal event. So that –
0: Mm. There's a there's a follow up question to what we you know what we started on talking with the book that I just I, I feel like I have to ask. Then we have time for one more, and then we got to get yeah. into our three standard questions. <laughs> um, we could spend we could spend another hour, I'm sure. Easily. But, um, so I want to go back to you know you you said what Clint Hurdle said right there at the beginning in the forward. If you're a leader uh, or you want to be a leader, you are you've either been humbled or you're about to be humbled. So let's talk to those aspiring leaders for a moment who haven't had the humbling reckoning moment yet. How do they mentally prepare themselves to not become either the pig head or the weakling that we don't want to see in leadership? How do they get ready to recognize those moments and then seize them as opportunities?
2: Yeah, that's a good question, Seth. I think that I think that the book can be helpful to that leader. It gives them sort of a, a, a heads up uh, on the leader that they want to be, right? And how to maybe, there, there are some preventative strategies in the, the book. One thing I would say is to think it's actually a good question by Jim Cousins and Barry Posner the people I referred to before my my friends who wrote the leadership challenge. I think it was them who said, "You know, you should ask yourself, what kind of leader do your people deserve you to be? In other words, mm-hmm. what kind of leader do your followers need you to be?" And uh, and oftentimes the answer is going to be in in an uplifting sort of uh, definition. Um, the the other th- question that I would ask myself as a a budding new leader is, "Am I the kind of leader that I'd like to be led by?" Mm-hmm. Um, and so Great some question. of this is about self reflection and being self aware. At the earliest convenience that that new leader, like let's say that the leader's got a year uh, under his or her belt at this point, um, it would be good for them to go through a 360 degree feedback process. Um, if their company has one, many of them do. If, the, if their company doesn't have one, I would say send an email to people that you would value their f- feedback. Not people who you will cherry pick, but people whose feedback right. you will actually value. Mm-hmm. And ask them a few questions like, you know, describe a time when you thought that I did a pretty good job of leading. Describe a time when you thought I missed an opportunity to have led. Um, what do you see as my leadership strengths? And, and what are some improvements that could help me become an even stronger leader? You know, those are just four basic questions that you could ask in an email to people that whose uh, input you would value. And just the recognition that the simple recognition that remember that the seasoning is involved in leadership and that Mm -hmm. you will come into a situation where you'll have to earn a merit badge and it will likely uh, bruise your ego a little bit. But recognize when that happens. Another thing Clint Hurdle said is welcome to the club that don't see it as something that's gonna hurt your career see it as I guess this is my moment right because yeah this happens to everybody and so here's my moment what am I gonna do with it
0: right that's such good uh, that's such good stuff there I mean just to get on. yourself mentally in the right place for, for when that time comes right because I mean that's a lot of what it is it's just making sure you're looking at things through the right lens to be able to be open to receive mm-hmm. right um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Keeping hmm. Ourselves... Perspective. Yeah, Perspective. Exactly. Perspective is 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 huge. There. Keeping ourselves humble. It's huge. So yeah. Lisa, open. Lisa, you feedback. got the three questions.
1: <laughs> so as a high capacity leader, um, what are you know, maybe that one favorite thing that you like to do um, to get yourself recharged?
2: Yeah, I like the question. Um, I love taking a walk. I, I don't think that there's ever been a walk that, and here in Asheville, by the way, when I say taking a walk, it's like I'm not just going around the neighborhood, right? Like I'm going up big hills. It'll take me an hour and a half to finish my walk a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And there's a mountain up here called Sunset Mountain, and I'll, I'll walk up Sunset Mountain and I'll come back down. And and uh, sometimes I have my ear buds in and I'm listening to tunes, but sometimes I'm not. Sometimes I'm just enjoying the birds and such. And I, I and sometimes I start that walk grumpy. Um, you know, for, because I just had a bunch of client calls, who knows, uh, you know, uh, but by the end of the walk, I'm almost always in a mental place of saying, thank you. I'm always, always in a place of gratitude uh, by the time the walk is finished. So I don't think there's ever been a walk that ultimately when it was done, I didn't enjoy and benefit from.
1: Mm-hmm. Good, good suggestion. Um, excellent. So Bill, how about the next question? Tell us one life experience that defines who you are today, or maybe an interesting fact that you'd like to tell our audience.
2: Yeah, that's a, that I had to think on that question. The, uh, you know, it's a story that I've never shared before, but when I was, um, When I was a springboard diver back in Westchester, um, I was going to the Westchester County Diving Championships. And it was my second year. I, I had uh, done okay the first year, but it was the second year, and my my whole family went out to S- uh, Southampton for a vacation, and I couldn't go because I had the county championships in Westchester, and I stayed with my grandmother. We called her Gugu. She was a saint. She was just unbelievable, and and she would build me up, and and I would be like, I don't, I'm so afraid, and I know I'm not going to do a good job, and I'd beat myself up in the way a 13-year-old kid does, and my grandmother Gugu, who is one of the simplest, and I mean that in a good way, you know, blessed souls that I ever met she'd say why not billy you can do it you're just as good as the other kids you work hard she would always build me up well i i went to the county diving championships and i remember when i came back from the counties and she opened the door she said how'd you do i said gugu i won i won she's like i told you you could do it and i I never forgot the She was like in my corner, right? Like I I never – I didn't fathom that I could actually win. But I did – I visualized. I worked hard. I listened to what she said. And I won the Westchester County Diving Championships. And then I would go on to win it two more times. But but since that time, what I learned from that is I've never really been saddled with doubt the way that a lot of people have. Um, I've never – I, I don't often think of something and think oh i I can't do that. I often start from a presumption that I can do it instead of that I can't do it since Google you know sort of set me straight in my thinking.
1: Oh, I love That's it awesome. I love it. It's those encouragers in our life, right?
2: Yeah, you know the ones who are in your corner oh. that uh, and and look, she was not a coach, you know right. she was just a grandmother right and mm-hmm. and uh yet but was in my corner and loved me and believed in me and and uh Help me believe in myself. Mm,
1: mm -hmm. We all need those. (laughs) All right. One last, our third question, Bill. If you were to tell a younger you one piece of leadership
2: or career advice, what would it be? I think I'll go back to the Heinz Brannon thing. I think that I Mm. wished I had known earlier on to care a little bit less about what other people thought of me, right? To to do less people-pleasing along the way and follow the things and the yearnings that are inside of my heart. Instead of feeling like I have to dance to other people's music, and uh, when Hines said that, I still struggle with people pleasing occasionally. Um, but I, but I think it was an, a hugely important message in my life, and I wish that I. Had given myself that permission earlier on in the mm-hmm. process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Excellent. Nice. Excellent. Well, Bill, thanks so much for the time mm-hmm. today. I mean, we it's been great. Uh, we were able to cover so much awesome stuff. I mean, just to kind of go through courage and risk taking, how that impacts leadership. Um, you know, having those humbling moments and what we do with them, right? Our perspective. One of the things that you mentioned before. So, uh, on our web uh, website, leadthis.us, uh, for folks listening, uh, we are going to have a page up. For uh, Bill, just go there at leadthis.us. Uh, Bill's website will be there. Uh, his firm, Giant Leap Consulting, their website will be there. We'll also link to his new book, A Leadership Kick in the Ass, available for purchase on Amazon. Definitely get yourself a copy of that. It's a good, uh, fun read. And, um, Bill, thanks so much for the time. We really appreciate it.
2: I'll tell you, Lisa and Seth, this was my favorite conversation all week. So thank you and your (laughs) listeners. Awesome. Thank you.
1: It was wonderful. (laughs) Thank you so much.
2: Thanks, Bill. Take care.
0: We want to connect with you. Check out leadthis.us where you can see previous episodes, get a preview of what's coming, plus access some helpful resources. You can email us at connect at with your questions, comments, or even topics you'd like to see us address in future episodes. Finally, remember to follow us on Twitter at leadthispodcast. Thanks, and we'll talk to you again soon.